Our first scripture reading today comes from the first book in the Bible, Genesis. Again, this is one of those easy ones to find, so if you're looking for it right at the beginning. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. This is the beginning of the Abraham story, um, and right at the beginning of Abraham's call. So this is um, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Listen to the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land your family, your father's household, for the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abraham left the Lord, left as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel lesson today comes from the Gospel of John. Uh, we are not in Matthew. We're, we're still in the lectionary, but, but um, as I said last week, uh, there are three years in the lectionary. There's four gospels, and so each of the three synoptic gospels kind of gets their year. This is the Matthew year, but then John gets kind of thrown in there, and John usually takes over during Lent. Uh, so now we're in John. John's a little bit different than Matthew. Matthew is very much uh, trying to help us see how Jesus was the Messiah that the Old Testament was talking about. And so Matthew is constantly referring back to the Old Testament. Jesus is very didactic, so he's teaching a lot. There's a lot of words of Christ in Matthew. Um, John's Matthew, or John's Jesus, uh, it's still the same Jesus. So even though I'm talking about it like they're different, it's just different people telling this story. And if, you had, if I asked five, four of your friends to tell me about you, they would tell the same story of the same person, but they would have different perspectives, especially if you had a work friend, a high school friend, uh, your spouse, and then someone who just met you last month. Um, and so John's approach to the gospel is very different, and so different that it, it's the, the three are the synoptics. They share a lot of the same source. Uh, usually it's Mark. Uh, and then John doesn't really share any of the same sources, and so you don't see the same um, exact stories in John that you see elsewhere. And Jesus is not, uh, in the synoptics you get Jesus constantly kind of telling people, uh, do you know who I am? Don't tell people yet. Oh, you're on the Messiah? Don't say anything yet. Which we call the messianic secret. Which is really Jesus saying, if they think I'm the Messiah, before they understand what I'm going to do, they're going to think I'm the wrong kind of Messiah. They, they have an idea that Messiah is going to come in and kill all the bad guys. That's not what I'm going to do. They're going to be very disappointed. So maybe hold off on telling people I'm the Messiah until you see what I'm about to do. Because it's going to blow everybody's mind. In... John, it's almost the exact opposite. Jesus comes right out of the gate and says, I'm God, deal with that. And is constantly pointing to the fact that, that he is God. Well, uh, which is, again, not a different story, not a different kind of Jesus, but just a different perspective on what Jesus is here to do. And we see this very clearly in this passage. This is John chapter 3. Uh, this is where, if you know one verse, it's in this book. Uh, it's in this chapter, so you're going to get it. We're, again, we're reading not from the King James Version, which is the one that everybody knows John 3.16 from, but we're reading from the Common English Bible. So the language is going to be a little different. And this is Jesus talking. Uh, I don't know if you remember, if you knew that when you memorized that verse in kindergarten, uh, that that was Jesus saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, speaking in third person. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. They're meeting in the middle of the night. This is chapter, uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, 
But no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it is not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter uh, your mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or even where it's going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how are these things possible? Jesus answered, you are a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? I assure you that when we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe when I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one from whom, uh, the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Almighty God, open our hearts, open our minds. May your word be found in my words. Amen. Uh, so first, uh, just a brief uh, tr- translation, uh, uh, just an important thing to know about. Uh, this is not really what we're talking about today, but uh, whenever we get into John, um, the church overall, the Christian church, has a huge history of anti-Semitism. Huge history. Uh, Anti-Semitism exists pretty much because of the Christian church. Uh, we, it, it existed outside of that. There, Anti-Semitism is not uh, exclusive to the Christian church, but we propagated it within society and a large part of it was using the Bible to justify that. John, in particular, was a gospel that was used to justify that, that the Jews had been rejected by God, that the Jews were the killers of Christ, that the Jews were less than those who are believing in Christ. All of that is not true. That is not what John is saying, and that is not what we should believe. And it's a seditious thing when we, when we don't recognize that. So I don't bring that up saying, because all of us uh, adhere to anti-Semitism, but saying that to know that when we hear things like Jesus being frustrated at the, at the religious leaders, that he's not condemning them and saying, you have failed and therefore you're rejected. He's frustrated because they should be the people at the forefront. And so if ever you hear a reading of scripture that seems to be, that you, that you hear it kind of saying, yes, Jews are less than, or Jews are rejected, or Jews are the ones that killed God, that is not the Bible speaking, that is a culture of centuries of anti-Semitism that, again, have largely been propagated by the church but have been taken over beyond that. Uh, I say that not to, to make us feel bad about the church, but to re- recognize the responsibility that we have in bringing about peace, that uh, a large part of church culture throughout history has been about power and not peace, and one of those ways has been anti-Semitism. So 
the more you know that star is going to fly by. And now let's get on with the show. Um, Jesus is talking here um, specifically about what it means to, to trust God, to follow God. The word believe is a huge one. That we know that John 3.16, that whosoever would believeth in God, uh, would believeth in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The word believe in our vernacular, in our culture, in our language, often means to make a choice. Do you believe me? Sure. Let's do this. And even we have developed a, a culture in the, in the 20th century. So it wasn't until the early, uh, the early parts of the 20th century that this notion of being born again, being a born-again Christian, came about. Nobody talked about that before 20th century America. It seems so ubiquitous now that we can't imagine. We think that that just means being a Christian, right? You're born again? No, it's a different thing. And it's a nuanced thing, which I think is important for us to parse out. A born-again Christian takes this verse as its, as its starting point, and the goal is to say, I'm born again, it's an experience that I have, and now I'm a Christian. It's a one-time thing that changes everything. That's not what this passage is saying, and, and I want to break down a little bit why that's problematic. The most important verse in this chapter, I would say, is not John 3.16. It's John 3.17. John 3.17, right after the verse that we know, says, really doubles down and reiterates what Jesus is trying to say here. For the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The problem with a born-again theology is that born-again theology is about determining whether you are in or out. And when you're determining whether you're in or out, it's not about who's rescued and who's not rescued. It's about who is good and who is bad, who is saved and who is not saved. That's a theology of condemnation. It's not a th theology of rescue. And if that sounds a little, a little if, you, if you're a little on the fence with that, that's okay. We'll get there. The problem uh, with, with it being about a choice is that a choice is on us. And a choice in that standpoint is a choice that now I've made this choice and now I am fine. A lot of times in churches, uh, especially in the history of the Presbyterian church, we have uh, uh, a theology of a thing called predestination, this notion that God has predestined um, everyone's fate, um, which is, is scriptural, and under, and, but also kind of confusing and nuanced because there's still free will uh, communicated in the gospel. And so what does that mean? Uh, and that, we're not going to get into that right now. But the, a lot of times that uh, has led to sometimes people saying, they're the elect, that's the language that's not necessarily in the Bible but has been drawn out out of predestination, the elect, the people that are getting to heaven, and the reprobate, it's a fancy way of saying the chosen and the not chosen the good people and the bad people, the saved and the condemned. But in this process, it's not about the choice we make. It's not about who's good enough. It's just about there are some people that get in and some people that don't. And the problem when that turns into a theology of born-againism is that our goal then as a church is just to go around and to tell people, are you in? Yes or no? Yes? Good. Moving on. It's about making a choice that's a one-time choice, and then once you've made that choice, then you're fine. And what you do after that doesn't really matter. It's like signing a, uh, a, a non-disclosure non agreement, a, a, a loyalty agreement to uh, a non-compete clause. 
say, I'm good, I won't do this, I pledge to do these things, I'm okay, you don't have to worry about me. And then if you go against that, they say, well, you made this decision a long time ago, we don't have to worry about you. That's not what Jesus is talking about, that's not what the church is about, that's not what this passage is about. We can see this echoed in Abram. So even before he changed his name to Abraham, this is the beginning of the Abram story, uh, Abram is asked by God, God says, I will bless you, I want you to go to this land that I promised to you, and through you I'm going to bless everybody. And so I need you to trust me and to go. Now, on one level, it's not a very big deal. We don't really talk about the faith of Abraham very much in this story. We talk about it kind of later with the Isaac sacrifice and things like that. But Abraham, who lives, uh, he is the son of the, the chief, basically, of this place. And God speaks to him in a way that only Abraham hears, according to the story, as far as we know, and tells him, leave all of this. You're basically the prince of this community. Leave this, take your stuff with you. He doesn't go by himself, he takes his whole entourage. But go to this place where there is nothing. It's different than uh, for, for everyone in this room. Our ancestors coming from Europe or other parts of the, of the world to this place. That required faith, but they were coming to a place where there was stuff. Unless they came over on the Mayflower, there was stuff here. And even if they did come out over on the Mayflower, there were people here who eventually said, here's how you do the stuff. No one was coming to nothing. Abram was called to go to nothing. Don't, go to, don't move to Baltimore and get a job there. Don't go out to California because that's a big risk where you have no family. Go to the middle of nowhere and just be there. And so Abram had to not just make a choice, but to live in such a way that showed faith. And if you know the Abram story, uh, he does kind of go back and forth. And he, he goes to that place, but then he doesn't stay there. Then he goes to Egypt, and then he doesn't quite trust God because he's lying about Sarah, and there's all kinds of complicated things like that. But the whole notion is that it's not just a one-time choice that Abram makes. Abram has to believe that God has called him here and live in such a way to trust that call, even into the point where God said, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your offspring. And Abram knows, I'm not having babies. And he continues to have to trust in that. And again, he falters in that a little bit, but eventually he trusts that God is going to provide. What Jesus is asking in this passage is not for, um, not for a one-time decision, but for people to start over. And what, what Nicodemus is pushing back on is not, not kind of the silliness of saying, like, do you expect a full-grown man to come out of the womb again? Like, it's an, it's, a, it's an awkward image. But what he's talking about is, this is a society in which age is valued, which wisdom is valued. I'm a Pharisee. You know how long it took me to become a Pharisee? Are you telling me none of this matters? Are you telling me I'm supposed to start over as a baby? I don't want to be a baby again. Like, even if it was taking it literally, that's the worst thing you could say to someone in the society. I don't have to go through all this again. I've worked my way up to this point. What's better? I mean, best case scenario, I do it again and I end up exactly where I am right now. Doesn't God want me here? That's a lot more problematic for us than just making a choice to be born again. What Jesus is saying is not just tell me whether you believe in me or not and then we'll be fine. Jesus is saying being born again is being born anew. It's starting over. It's recognizing that the whole system that you exist in is not helpful. And the whole system of loving your neighbor can't just be added on 
to a system of being the best, of determining who's good and who's evil. A system of condemnation cannot exist with a system of salvation. Those two things are not... The, to, to be a, uh, someone who comes to save the world is not someone who comes to condemn the world. Those two things are not compatible. And so for Jesus to say, you need to be born anew, Jesus is saying, you need to start over. You need to be willing to be completely changed. Your whole life is going to be different. And he says this throughout, for anyone who wants to save their life must lose their life. It seems like a very dramatic thing until you recognize that what he's saying is everything that you've earned, all this stuff, that you, this cultural capital that you've gained, these stations in life that you've gotten to, none of that matters. You need to be willing to give all of that up in order to set your mind on the right path, to continue to follow Christ. And belief in this sense, again, isn't a one-time thing. It's a constant thing. If I was to say, um, and I've used this before, if I was to say I'm a runner, I'm not. Uh, but if I was to say I was a runner, I can't say I was a runner because I ran in high school. I can't say I was a runner because I just bought running shoes, which is true. <laughs> and in my head, I think, well, I bought the shoes. I'm halfway there. <laughs> and being a runner doesn't mean you have to be the best. Just because I want to be a runner, it's not like I can't claim that I'm a runner until I'm standing on the podium with that gold medal to say, take that, Usain Bolt. I know you retired, but you're still looking at me up here winning this gold medal. That's not about it. And we have this culture that says you have to be the best. And if you're not the best, then you have failed. That's a condemnation culture. Instead, what Jesus is calling us to is a, is a, a life in which what we believe actually means something. Belief in, the, in the, both the Hebrew and the Greek word, uh, the Greek word is, is, is pistis, and it's, it's a verb. It's not, it's not a noun. You can't have belief. You don't, I, don't, I need to believe more. You can't do that. You just do it. It's like running. I can't be a runner unless I'm running or have recently run. And the longer I go without running, the less I'm actually a runner. So to be born again is to say, I believe in Jesus. This one time when I was 22, or this one time when I was 12 at, at, at summer camp, and so therefore I'm, I'm a runner. Because I ran that one time. It doesn't make any sense. But for a lot of us, that's how we view our faith. Well, I had this big experience when I was in sixth grade, and I turned my life over to Jesus, and now I'm a Christian. And I'm 55, and I haven't really thought about it since then, but I still have a Bible, and I come to church, and I'm a Christian. Maybe. But that alone doesn't make you one. That would be just as making much sense as in sixth grade, which this is true, in sixth grade I could run a mile in five and a half minutes. So I was a runner. Guess what I can run a mile now? I have no idea because I have no interest in running that long. I tried it. I, I could run a mile in, I could run 200 yards in about 30 seconds. Maybe not that. I, I, I can run 200 yards in about four minutes. Then I, then I stop. I have no interest in, in, in running because I feel like, well, I did it. I was fast then. I'm never going to be that fast again, so why try? And a lot of us, we think, well, I had this great, great faith when I was in youth group, when I was a kid, or when I was in uh, college, college ministry, or when I had this experience, whatever, this thing that led me to Christ, and that was good. That was my mountaintop, so I don't really need to try, because I got that. That's my trophy on the wall that can remind us, I did it at one point. I'm born again. Jesus doesn't want that. That doesn't really matter. Jesus is saying you need to believe in such a way that you are constantly doing. Belief is not something you have. 
Faith is not something you have, it's something you do. And if you don't do it, you don't have it. And again, if we look at everything that Jesus is saying, with, when you helped these people, you were helping me. When you didn't help these people, you weren't helping me. That all of this is consistent with the idea of a faith that has to be put into action. It's like breathing. You can't breathe enough for the year and then take a break for a week. You have to keep breathing. If you stop breathing, you are not alive. If you stop faithing, then you cease to have faith. Whoever believes that Jesus has saved them can live a life that is different. When you are believing that every day, and it's like running in the sense that you don't have to be the best. I got those running shoes so that I will run. I don't think I'm going to ever run a marathon. I'm kind of okay not running a marathon. In fact, I think I actively don't want to run a marathon. But I would like to be able to run down my street without then having to take a break for five minutes before I walk home. I would like to be a little more healthy physically. And for us to be healthy spiritually, we can't just rely on what we had and say that was good enough. It's like being a football player in high school and then continually to com coming back to football games and looking at other people doing it and saying, yeah, I used to be that. I can remember that. When church just becomes us coming back to hear about other people doing the things that we could also be doing, then it's just like us sitting in the stands at a high school football game when we're 50, thinking about how that one time we had a really good game where we almost scored a touchdown. Jesus is asking us to be willing to give everything up, to be completely changed, to start everything over. And just like Nicodemus, for us, we would say, why would I want to do that? I have worked so hard to get here. And I know it's not where I want to be, but it's still better than starting over. I am too old. This is not the time for me to start running. I have signed on to a life where I'm not going to run again. And now you're telling me I need to move? But Jesus is saying, if you do that, if you live a life that demonstrates a faith that God is real, that, that we can trust God when God says we need to love each other, we need to love our enemies, that that makes a difference, then you will never die. And he goes on to say, but if you don't do that, you'll never live. You will never live. Now that seems like condemnation, but it's not. Because it's really Jesus not saying, I judge these people good and these people bad. Jesus is saying, I invite everyone to take part in this. But if you're not going to take it seriously, then I can't help you. If you're not going to live in a way that demonstrates this trust in God, this willingness to stop trying to be the best and just start trying to be present, then I can't help you. If, I'm, if, you're floating, if you're drowning in a river and I hold out the stick for you, if you are unwilling, if you go looking at me and saying, I'm not drowning while you're going down, there's nothing I can do for you. That's not rescue, or that's not condemnation. That is someone who is trying to rescue and you saying, no, I'm fine, I don't need rescued. I got rescued 10 years ago when I fell on this rake like before. Part of being a Christian is doing it every day. 
Part of following Jesus is doing it every day. It's making mistakes. It's failing. It's not running as fast as you used to. It's not wanting to run today. It's taking days where you don't do it. But it's always getting back on. It's greeting each day, recognizing there is a narrative that we've been living into that says it's about who's good and who's bad, and I'm just trying to be good, and recognizing Jesus is saying that is not the way of life. Instead, you need to recognize you have been saved and live your life with the freedom that that reality brings. That your day is not about proving to others that you are better than them or proving to yourself that you are better than yourself, but instead about openly accepting others, loving them, caring for them, and bringing about peace. We don't do this with one choice. We do this with all the choices every day. Let us be people who are willing to be changed. Let us be people who are not threatened by losing our life. Let us be people who are willing to love because God has first loved us. To know that we will fail, but to not quit. Because the goal is not to win the race. The goal is to run the race. Let us run this race together. Amen.